0: Amen. What a day that will be when all pain and tears and trial and suffering are wiped away and we feast with the Lord and his people. Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew? Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. We're going to be in the first 11 verses together. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. What would you say, if someone asked you, is the most important week of your life? What is the most important week in your life? Some of you might say when you got married. Some of you may say when you moved uh, into a new house or place, maybe when you met your spouse, maybe when you became a believer in Jesus, or some other reason. But I want to argue with you that we are about to read about the first day in the most important week in all of human history, and by extension, as we study this together, this is the most important week of your life, for your life. Jesus' most important week changed the world. The events of this week in history turned the whole known Roman world upside down. A Roman empire which persecuted Christians became a Christian empire. This week created the basis upon which western civilization was built the abolition of slavery the recognition and advancement of human rights education science and literacy all come out of the judeo-christian worldview and it began here in the events that we are about to study together so as with the importance of these events in history it means more to us who are christians those of us who follow jesus because your eternal soul is riding on your response to these events you believe that jesus is who he said he is and i beg you whether you are a christian or whether you are not a christian please pay attention to these events whether you believe that jesus is the savior or not This is the most important and influential week in human history. And it deserves our attention. This morning, I hope that we will see together, as told by our eyewitness account from Matthew, that Jesus is your rightful king. Jesus is your rightful king. Let's look together as we begin reading in our text in Matthew Chapter 21 and verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was drawing near to Jerusalem. Doesn't that make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up? I'm seeing some blank faces. (laughs) It should. Now, we have not been going through a whole study of Matthew, but this is really important. Um, so let's have one of those TV recap things that are at the beginning of TV episodes. You know what I'm talking about? Last time on Survivor. This, all of this stuff happened that's going to be important for this episode, right? So let's do this so we can really understand what's going on in this text. So in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is born. And the magi, these wise men, come into Jerusalem and say, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? And they're in Jerusalem. Now, when the actual physical king of the Jews, Herod, hears this, he's troubled. And verse 3 says, this troubles King Herod and, quote, all of Jerusalem with him. This King Herod, who was in charge of Jerusalem, what did he do then? He ordered the slaughter of all toddler male babies because of this threat to King Herod's rule. So what's Jesus' first encounter with Jerusalem as a toddler? It wants to kill him. After being baptized by John and anointed with the Holy Spirit in chapters 3 and 4, Jesus begins his ministry. He teaches, preaches, and heals. But he doesn't go to Jerusalem, according to Matthew, during that time. In chapter 12, verse 14, Jesus schools the Pharisees on the Sabbath. They bring charges against him, and he teaches them the right way to view the Sabbath. And he heals a man in their presence. And after this encounter... Matthew 12, 14 says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So Jesus encounters the Pharisees and scribes after a few times, and what happens? They want to kill him. This changes the game for Jesus. He orders his followers and even those who he heals to be quiet and don't tell anyone that he is the Christ. And twelve sixteen, he begins speaking in parables to hide from those, um, the things about the kingdom of God and reveal it to others who will hear the threat of the Pharisees and the scribes. They don't put the brakes on the car of Jesus' ministry, but they do have him shift gears. In 1616, 16, Jesus goes on to ask the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you might be saying, okay, you're losing me. Where are we going with this? What does this have to do with Jerusalem? Well, right after, Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's read quickly in Matthew 16, 20 and 21, what happens. Jesus says to them, then... He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to where? Jerusalem. And do what? Suffer many things. From who? The elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised jesus predicted this is what was going to happen he was going to go to jerusalem who wanted to kill him as a baby he was going to go confront the pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders who already are plotting to kill him and he would die so this is the mic drop moment we look back at our text in matthew 21 as they approached jerusalem This is the moment Jesus has anticipated His whole earthly life. This is the reason He became God in the flesh and dwelt among us. It's the reason He's been going to preach about the kingdom of God and heal and cast out demons. Jesus knows He's not just approaching the capital city of Israel. This isn't just the place where the temple is located. This isn't just where his enemies are, inspiring, are conspiring to kill him. This is the place that he will die. A horrible, public, excruciating death on a criminal's cross. The tensions are high. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. This is Frodo Baggins crossing into Mordor. He's got the ring and he has been on this journey for a long time. And the tensions are high. This is the Avengers assembling against Thanos. This is Simba crossing back into the Pride Lands to confront his wicked, murderous uncle to save the animal kingdom. Yes, even animated movies have to take themes from the Bible. Except this isn't a movie. This is history. And again, this is the most important week in human history. And it's about to unfold. So what's going to happen? now we're ready to read matthew 21 1 through 11 and i would ask you in the reading of god's word if you would stand if you are able and if not to stand in your heart as we read this text together matthew 21 verse 1. now when they drew near to jerusalem and came to bethphage to the mount of olives then jesus sent two disciples saying to them go And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Thank you, you may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How does Jesus approach Jerusalem? Symbolically, he is telling Jerusalem and the whole world, I am your rightful king. And here's three reasons this text gives why Jesus is the rightful king. First, Jesus is an authoritative king, a king with authority. Look at verses 1 through 3 again with me. What happens? This is a king who gives commands to his followers and they obey him. With the authority of a prophet, Jesus knows the future, knows where the donkeys are and tells them to go and trust the provision of God the Father to carry out his will. And what happens? The disciples go. They find a donkey, just like he said. Because this is a king who is a prophet and his words are true. But why do the disciples obey him? Well, they've been traveling with him for years. And they've seen him demonstrate his authority in so many ways. <laughs> Jesus doesn't only have authority to tell the disciples to go get donkeys. Throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus' authority has been emphasized. In Matthew seven, twenty nine, he teaches as one who has authority, unlike any scribe. In Matthew eight, twenty seven, he has authority. The authority over nature—he calms the wind and the waves. In Matthew nine six, he has the authority to forgive sins and to heal the lame. In Matthew ten, he has so much personal authority over the unclean spirits that he has the power to deputize his disciples to have that same authority as well. Matthew twelve eight, he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is a greater prophet than Jonah, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, more wise than Solomon, more righteous than the Pharisees. He feeds thousands with bread, walks on water and pleases the father, uh, which is affirmed by a voice from heaven. He has authority to announce the kingdom of heaven, to reveal truth about the kingdom of heaven and to give away the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the rightful king of Jerusalem because he is an authoritative king. He is powerful and wise and good. And this alone would be enough for Jesus to be king. But this isn't the only reason he's the rightful king of Israel. First, he's an authoritative king, but we also see he is an anointed king. So be honest. When we read this text, And Jesus said, go find me a couple donkeys. Did that make sense to you? I don't know about you. I've never seen a president ride a donkey into Washington, D.C. Although I bet more people would watch the inauguration if that happened. Maybe we could do that. Why does Jesus do this? Look again with me in verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew lives through this first. And he doesn't have this narrative guide or the loudspeaker or the narrator telling him these things. As he's reflecting back over Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and asking for a donkey, he's reading his Old Testament and he says, Jesus wanted to do this to fulfill the Old Testament, as he's done countless other times. The first line of this quotation is probably from Isaiah 62.11, but the main part is from Zechariah 9.9, which you might have noticed we read first this morning. Let's look real briefly at that together. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So to make a long story short, Zechariah 9.9 is a prophecy about the coming king from David's line, the Messiah. And this was written 500 years before the life of Jesus. We don't really have time to look at this in depth But Matthew starts his gospel and the whole reason he's writing this is to convince us that Jesus is the Christ. He is this rightful king. He is the son of David. And all we have to do is look back at the very first verse of this book and we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us non-Jewish, modern Americans, but this was an important and a bold claim for the people of Israel. How do we know that? Jesus confronts the Pharisees about this, and they know that the Messiah is to be called the Son of David in Matthew twenty-two, forty-one 41 and 42. Jesus asked them, The Christ, whose son is he? And they say, the son of David. Now we remember that the last name of Jesus wasn't Christ, right? He wasn't born to Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, Jesus Christ. Christ is his title. Jesus the King, Jesus the Christ. This is a claim that he was sent by God to save the people of God and restore them to the rightful place in the world. Genesis 3.15, to fulfill the promise to crush the head of the serpent, defeat evil once and for all, and to bring the people of God and restore them to their rightful place as rulers of the earth, God's earth. And Matthew tells us that Jesus' name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So let's review. Jesus commands the disciples to give him a donkey, not because he can't walk anymore. Not because he wants a first-class ride into Jerusalem. Jesus is making a statement as he rides into Jerusalem and to the religious leaders, and eventually, through this text, the whole world. They understood the symbolism and the claim that he was making. See, Jesus was flying under the radar after the Pharisees threatened to kill him. But no longer. Jesus throws down the proverbial gauntlet. I am the rightful king of Jerusalem. Jesus not only has the authority of a king, he's not only anointed and the promised Messiah, Savior, king of the Old Testament. This text tells us also about Jesus' character. That he is a humble king. is this king that is coming domineering and cruel is he violent and self-centered will he exploit others for his own benefit while the whole book of matthew answers this question by the way that jesus has interacted with every single person like we talked about in sunday school this text tells us something about this king look with me again at the quotation in Verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. What? How? Humble and mounted on a donkey. When you think of a king, what do you think of? What do you think of a character of a king? Maybe you think of the Broadway show Hamilton and King George Third, who's a singing, ludicrous crazy person. And he taxes the American colonies into rebellion. Maybe you think of the adulterous and self-serving King Henry VIII, who famously wanted to get a divorce and created his own religion, basically, so that he could be divorced and marry then six other people and to kill upward of 50,000 people like a tyrant. Maybe you think of other tyrants like Stalin, who was responsible for the deaths of millions of his own people, yet lived in luxury. Like the French royalty, who lived in luxury while famine killed the French people and of starvation. I feel pretty safe to say, though I can't say for sure, that none of us have lived under the political rule of a king. So maybe that falls under deaf ears a little bit. But many of you do know what it's like to live under the rule of someone stronger than you, someone who's meant to take care of you and to abuse their power. Some of you have family members who are arrogant. They were self-serving. They were abusive. And this taints your view of any authority, much less a king, But here we see Zechariah puts that to bed. Because Jesus is not like these other figures we've talked about. He is humble and he rides on a donkey. R.T. France in his commentary writes and captures this really well. He says, Jesus is victorious and yet meek. And his triumph is received rather than won. He rides a donkey rather than a war horse. And his kingdom will be one of peace rather than coercion. Zechariah's vision prepares the reader well for a kingship which will be established without violence, and indeed through submitting to the will of his enemies, so that his ultimate triumph will come only when he is vindicated and saved from death by the power of God. See, Jesus throws down the gauntlet to the people of Jerusalem and says, doesn't say, "Come and get me if you can." Jesus comes humble and meek. He's not the kind of king to abuse his citizens. Jesus does make a bold, authoritative, anointed claim, but he does so meekly. He does so humbly. What does it mean to be humble or meek? Well, this word that's used for humble or meek is only used four times in the whole Old Testament and three times in Matthew. In Matthew five five, Jesus says, The meek are blessed, for they shall inherit the earth. And he also said in Matthew eleven, twenty eight through twenty nine, a very famous and familiar verse to us which says, Come to me, all ye who are labor who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, or humble or meek in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Humility and meekness does not mean to be powerless. It is not to be without power, because if that's the definition, Jesus is disqualified, right? He is full of power and authority, but he is humble. He is meek. I can't remember where I first heard this, but it's true. Meekness is not weakness. It is what is power under control. Jesus had the power to call down legions of warrior angel hosts and to destroy Jerusalem for stirring up against him, for desiring to kill him. But he didn't. He had the power to demand that every knee would bow to him right then and there, but he doesn't. He has the power to revolt against Roman soldiers with Simon Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he calls for the nonviolent advancement of this kingdom, not of this world, the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is a powerful, authoritative, anointed ruler, and he gives all that up to serve others. Matthew twenty. 28 says, even as the son of man came not to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus doesn't use his power to make his own life better and to take what he wants by force. As we talked about in Sunday school, might doesn't make right. He uses what he has to give it away to others catch this. There's no one who is more worthy to demand things from others. And yet he graciously offers salvation and peace to those who would submit to his rule. What could you give this king? He's creator God. Everything you have has been given to you by him. He needs nothing and gives everything away. He gives himself so that you could have everything. What kind of king is this? He's a servant king. King Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the place that has been against him from day one, and says, I am the rightful king of Jerusalem, full of authority, of anointing from God and humility. But our passage doesn't end there. It's not just about who Jesus is and what he's doing as he enters. What happens? How do people respond to this claim, to this announcement of the coming king? Well, let's look in verses 6 and following. And we see two responses to Jesus' claim of rightful kingship. Verse six the disciples went and did it as he directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowds catch this, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna. But verse ten, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? So there are two parties and two responses to Jesus. One is the response of the following crowds. This is something that surprised me as I was studying this text. But those who are crying, Hosanna to the Son of David, aren't the people of Jerusalem. Look again in the text. It's the crowds who are following Jesus. Those who are foreign to Jerusalem that cry, Hosanna to the son of David. What do they shout? They quote scripture, Psalm 118, 25 and 26, and they call Jesus the son of David. This is their affirmation of the claim of Jesus. We believe you are who you say you are. Hosanna just means save us. Save us, son of David. And this is the same affirmation, the son of David, that the blind men just gave Jesus before he enters Jerusalem in the text before this. They cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So this crowd celebrates and they sacrifice. Verse 8, they lay down their own garments so that Jesus might walk over them on a donkey. They cut branches from the trees and lay them on the road. And this is where we get the term from this day. Palm Sunday, the branches on the ground. And we have some here that were made by our kids. This crowd has given up their worldly possessions. They have counted the cost of following Jesus, and they say, you can have this world give me Jesus. The king they've been waiting centuries for has finally come. But... The crowds who followed Jesus are not the only ones who respond to Jesus' claim. We don't have an immediate response from Jer- Jerusalem here, but the rest of the text is clear. And for the sake of time, let's be succinct and blunt. The response of Jerusalem to Jesus is rejection and murder. We know how this week turns out for Jesus. Spoiler alert. He predicted it three times already to his disciples. He knows what he's walking into. Jerusalem's rightful and long-awaited king comes to them, and they reject him, and they kill him. And you might be thinking, so all of this makes sense, but how does this impact me? So what? Jerusalem rejects Jesus as king. What does this have to do with me? Well, let's remember again what I said at the beginning. This week is the most important week in all of human history because it has lasting effects on us for today. It's the reason we're sitting in a church like this today. And so we ask again, why does Jerusalem reject Jesus Well, the same reason that anyone rejects Jesus. We reject him as king because we already have a ruler on the throne of our hearts, ourselves. We, as rulers of our own heart and life, are the total inverse of Jesus and his claim to kingship. Yet we claim the throne of our hearts for ourselves that rightly belongs to God. See, we have no room for Jesus. While we are creatures, created, dependent on God in every way and have no authority, we live like we do to say what is right and what is good, and to live and to do and say whatever we like. We have no authority, but we claim it for ourselves. We act like our own saviors, while at the same time denying our need of a savior. We'll accept help from no one, because it implies that we're limited and fallen and needy. We don't accept help from other people, or from our own family, or sometimes from our own church family, much less help from God. We claim to be self-sufficient With no sin problem and no need of saving. We can't have a humble king on the throne of our hearts because we swell with pride. The beginning, middle, and end of our days are consumed with ourselves. Like the rich young ruler, we've loved the things of this world so much that we would rather have them than Jesus And this, Sean was telling me about a sermon he heard a few weeks ago. We would rather lose our soul to gain the whole world than to give up the world to gain our own soul. We would rather lose our soul than to give up any comfort or desire for King Jesus. So yes, this story and this week is about us. Because Jesus was a real man. This is not a movie. He lived a human life just like you and me, except he was God in the flesh and he never sinned. And he still makes this claim a claim that he was God, that he was the promised king from the Old Testament, fulfilling prophecies made thousands of years before him, and that he would save his people from his sins. You may be aware that C.S. Lewis famously creates a what's called a trilemma or three options for Jesus and who he is in his great book, Mere Christianity. And here's what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Let's see if you have heard any of these things. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Make your choice. So in other words, Jesus was either a liar, he knew he wasn't God and said it anyway, he was a lunatic, he thought that he was God, but he was mistaken, or he is Lord. He is telling the truth and he demands our loyalty. So what is your response? See, this is relevant to your life right now because that trilemma still exists, Who will you say Jesus is? This demands a decision because even though he was killed in Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago, he didn't stay dead. Amen? Because the way is narrow that leads to eternal life and broad is the way that leads to destruction in hell. I feel confident saying, some of you here have attempted to make Jesus your savior and a good moral teacher, and not Lord. You claim you believe in Jesus and He died for my sins, but you do not recognize Him as Lord and King in your heart. Let me be very blunt. If Jesus is not your Lord, He is not your Savior. If you do not submit to His rule, He will not save you from your sins because you have missed it. The earliest confession of Christianity was not, Jesus is my Savior. The earliest confession of Christianity was, Jesus is Lord. He owns me because he's bought me with his blood. And he's bought you with his blood. If you would just recognize him as king. He already is king. Jesus is coming back one day. And he will not be the meek one riding on a donkey. Scripture says he will be riding a white horse and he will come in judgment with a sword. See, your choice is not whether or not you will confess Jesus as Lord. That is not an option. What is your option is whether you will confess him now or in the next life. Some of you need to make him Lord today. And I would beg you, cry out to God, agree with him about your sin and turn away from it, repent of it, submit to Jesus as Lord, obey his servant hearted, meek authority. We need more people in this church, in this town, in this state, in this nation, in this world, to surrender to the rule of Jesus. Will you make him Lord today? Crown him Lord in your life right now. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you calling you Lord because you deserve it. Because you have all authority in heaven and on earth. Because you died the death that we deserve as our servant, penal substitute, so that we may be forgiven of our sins. Lord, we pray that no one sitting here would leave this place without making you Lord. Lord, disabuse the people here of the notion that they can call Jesus their Savior and not obey Him. Lord, would You break our hearts for not loving You with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Would You break our hearts for not loving our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, may You now and forever have rule over this church. May you have rule over my heart in life. And may we recognize you now while there is still time. And may we go to others so that they may know him as well. And it's the name of your precious son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.